I remember being at a retreat as a young Christian in high school, excited about faith, zealous for anything that would help me grow. Uh, and I went to a retreat and my faith was stirred. Uh, we, we had campfire sharings. Have you ever been to a retreat before and you had those experiences? Sometimes uh, they feel kind of strange and awkward. Sometimes it just, and actually often they are strange and awkward, but sometimes God will break through that awkwardness and strangeness and amazing things will happen. And I remember leaving that retreat, uh, never wanting that experience to end. But of course it ended. And the jolt of figuring out how to bring those very emotional, dramatic, uh, powerful experiences to my everyday experiences felt a little strange. Uh, I guess I go back and try and do things a little differently. But I, I always left longing for the intimacy of that space, not quite exactly figuring out how to live in that experience in the day-to-day, everyday experiences of life and church rhythms. I think that revealed, and those of us who had those kinds of spiritual experiences, whether they're retreats or other kinds of spaces, we, it kind of reveals to this us a deep longing for intimacy, community, to be known and rooted in love. On the other hand, I've had experiences of going cross-culturally, living intentionally on mission for short periods of time, living out the gospel in word and deed, and having those experiences really deeply impact me. I remember taking youth to New York City once uh, while I was in seminary with the church I was with, and uh, I was we were paired up to do just you know random conversations and evangelism. We just wanted our kids to get stretched, uh, to just you know talk to people and tell them why you're in New York. And we tried to do that. That seems strange now thinking about that. I want to take our kids and bring them to New York City and have those conversations not vlogging the whole entire thing, but just having conversations with people. And randomly, uh, the person I was paired up with, we picked up a a, a lost cell phone. And I'm like, well, let's just hold on to this cell phone and wait around for a second. And the person called and they met us up. And we, I'm like, this is the person God wants us to share the gospel. And the person was like, no, it's not. And I was like, no, it is. And we shared the gospel with them. And the response was they actually were in need. Uh, They're sister was in the hospital and we actually asked that we could go visit their sister in the hospital with them. We prayed and we, we followed the Holy Spirit leading us to witness to this family just by picking up a random cell phone living intentionally in New York. And that experience brought out this desire to be part of a movement that makes a difference, to, to live intentionally on mission. I think sometimes we take these two kinds of experiences in the Christian life of longing to be rooted and have intimate relationships and living intentionally on mission. And we sadly sometimes pit them against each other. But these two deep desires in following Christ must be held together in tension and figure out the rhythms of living in and out of this rhythm of intimacy as well as living intentionally on mission. If we lean only towards community and intimacy and deepening relationships, trying to live out a retreat experience in our everyday life of trying to follow Jesus, what ends up happening is an insular community, a static community that sometimes becomes just self-absorbed, self-interested. We end up creating Christian bubbles. And we say we want to live out the mission of God, but really all of our time, our resources, our culture that we create is all about us. On the other hand, you could focus, and many parachurch ministries fall into this kind of trap at times, where you live intentionally on ministry, and you try and live very passionately, zealously, and then it doesn't come from a deep-rooted community. 
and you become ungrounded and isolated, many of those people experience burnouts eventually. Part of being a, a part of God's family, the church, is not an either or between these two, between intimacy and community and living intentionally on mission. It actually is a merging of the two and finding rhythms in the church that sustain both because they flow from and out of each other. The church is a living organism, as we talked about early on. And in this, we can think of this rhythm as the inhaling and the exhaling of the church, the inhaling of being together, deepening relationships, and the exhaling of being sent out. Many scholars thinking about this rhythm call this the gathering and the scattering of the church. And that's what I want to look at today as we survey Acts, kind of looking at it from a high level, looking at the rhythms that are displayed of inhaling, gathering, and exhaling being sent, and maintaining both the inhaling and gathering and the exhaling and scattering. Acts is ultimately a book about Jesus keeping his promises that he made to build a church. He made this promise, I will build my church. And what we see in Acts in these 28 chapters is Jesus keeping this promise. And one of the things I want to look at as we survey this book at a high level is seeing as he's building this church, this, this rhythm of gathering and being sent out and scattering. Let's start again with the passage Caleb just read for us, Acts 1, 6-8. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They came together. I mean, we just read over this as something they did, but you'll see this repeated if you look intentionally at the book of Acts. They gathered, they assembled. This word ecclesia in the Greek, sometimes, you know, cooler churches name themselves ecclesia. It comes from this word church, assembly. It's a gathering of called out ones by Jesus. And what we see here in the very beginning is Jesus calling his disciples together for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom. And he goes on in verse 7 to 8. And he said to them, it is not... For you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's interesting that as Jesus is gathering them and kind of investing in them and helping them understand intimacy and community and growth and maturity, that the church ends up fixating on the wrong thing. They think that as he's being gathering them, that he's just going to establish an earthly kingdom right there and make it about them. That's one of the things that was inherently wrong about their view about the kingdom of God. That it was about them, about their power, about being first. And Jesus kind of destroys that. No, I'm not gathering you just to stay together. He immediately says, you know, first of all, you're fixated on the wrong thing. You're worried about the time. It's interesting, right? The church is consistently throughout the generations fixated on the wrong things fixated on things that aren't our responsibility and then neglecting the very thing that is our responsibility. No, he's, he's going to give them the Holy Spirit and send them out as witnesses. They're not gathering as an end in itself, but there's this rhythm of being sent out, being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth, to tell other people about Christ, that he didn't just become a man. He wasn't just a carpenter. This was the, the son of God. And he lived a perfect life, the one that humanity was called to live. He lived perfectly according to the law. And he died, not because he deserved to die, but because he took our debt of sin, the, the rebellion we had against God that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. He took that in our place. 
and he didn't just die. He rose. There's an empty tomb, and you are to be my witnesses, declaring that that changes everything to everyone, everywhere, because that is how great his glory will extend, his life and his hope. They are to be pushed out geographically, sent out. And so you see from the very beginning, even as Jesus is gathering his disciples, investing them, teaching them, caring for them, that built in is this rhythm of gathering and being sent. We see this continue on right after they receive or during the receiving of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, in verse 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, see, they were all together. They were gathering. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They gathered, and the Holy Spirit came in the form of fire and wind, symbols from the Old Testament describing God's presence. Right, that, that presence of God in the Old Testament was the temple, where you have these images of fire and wind. And now the, the presence of God is indwelling his people, the church. He's in and with his people. The manifestation of God's presence comes out here uniquely and powerfully in languages that they could not previously speak. And this gifting of various languages is not random. It's not a, just a general display of power. This is a display of biblical reversal and the very gifting that the people of God need to carry out the very mission of God. It's a spiritual empowerment. In verse, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, they were called to go to the end of the earth, meaning you're going to eventually cross cultural, linguistic barriers. And the very first gifting they have is to be able to speak so they can cross those barriers indicating that they have the power from God's presence to carry out the very mission God calls them to do. He's not just saying, well, go do this and figure it out on your own. No, he's with them. He's displaying that spiritual empowerment. The Holy Spirit empowers gifting, not just to build them up. He's giving them the very tools and skills and gifts they need to carry out the scattered mission. It's also a biblical reversal. This is the exact reversal of Babel. The very people of God in Genesis were called to be fruitful and multiply, fill the entire earth. That was the creation mandate of mankind. But by the time you get to Babel, they are not scattering, they're gathering and they're refusing to spread out. And what they want to do, rather than spreading the God's glory throughout the end of the earth, they want to build up to God. And in fact, be and replace God. And so God scatters them throughout the earth with various places and languages, dividing humanity. But here you see the uniting of humanity under Christ. You see this gathering, again, they're gathering, and they receive the Holy Spirit to be empowered to scatter. You see, at, eight, and then at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago, they're gathering in the temple, and they're gathering in homes throughout the week. There's this rhythm you just see displayed in the people of God. By the time you get to chapter 6, you see this amazing rhythm being blessed. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God blesses this gathering and scattering on mission with multiplication. 
not just addition. Organic things grow in nature by multiplying. Plants grow in and of themselves. So they get larger, they get they bear fruit. That's addition growth. They're, they're growing by themselves. But how do plants also grow? The wind takes their seed and they pollinate and they spread seed across the land. Animals also grow. They, they grow by themselves. They get larger. They also just get stronger, but they also multiply. They bear next generation animals and they multiply and fill the earth. Humanity was also given the exact same mandate by God to bear fruit, multiply, fill the earth. It's the same with the church. The church is supposed to grow by having people within its local church grow in their faith and maturity. You see local churches sometimes add people and so they grow in their size and they grow in maturity, but the, that growth is not meant to be the only growth of the church. It is called to multiply. And so we send people out to different places. We also send people out intentionally to start new churches because our local church is not the end by itself. It's not an inward growth alone where we get larger and larger and larger. No, the growth is beyond us in multiplying because God's glory is beyond us. A healthy biblical church will grow not just by addition, it will grow by multiplication, grow by disciples making more disciples, people being sent out on mission, efforts to start new churches, intentionally sending people out as they move to different places based upon callings in their lives. By the time you get to Acts chapter 7, the church is growing and flourishing, but they face one of the most significant early challenges of persecution. Stephen, we saw in Acts chapter 6, was selected as one of the precursors to the deacons. But these deacons aren't just people who just serve. Obviously, they're gifted with the word as well and know the scriptures. And Stephen gives this amazing sermon. And he's framed, basically, by the government. And he's murdered. He's murdered in a very demoralizing way. In broad daylight, one of the church's main leaders is stoned to death. Imagine the brutality that it takes to stone someone to death in daylight. And there's this growing persecution. Saul, before he becomes Paul, is chasing Christians down. He's, they're facing the early church problems from the government. They're also facing problems from religious zealots from the Jewish community. They're, they're facing challenges and difficulties from all sides. If we were to put ourselves in the shoes of this early church, especially at this moment where Stephen is martyred, we probably feel, or many of us would be tempted to feel, this is the beginning of the end. How can we continue? They're killing our leaders. They're hunting us down. At this point in the story, if we find ourselves in it, no one knows it's going to happen. But look at what God does. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This sounds familiar. Exactly what Jesus said would happen in chapter 1. That they would go to Judea and Samaria. They would go. Look at verses 4 to 5 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. God is actually carrying out the very thing he said they would do. And he actually does it in a very shocking way to us. Because we don't tend to think about how God works 
to the, the means by which he works, which is usually a reversal of our expectations. As bad as persecution is, and the death and martyrdom of Stephen, God works through that to carry out his plan. I love what it says in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching. That to me is amazing. If you, if you are someone who's thinking about mission and living intentionally, this is one of those verses we just anchor in our hearts. As they were scattered, they went about preaching. They didn't stop living on mission as they were spread, as they were persecuted, as their church leaders were being killed. They went out and they continued to live faithfully to the mission because they believed that Jesus could rise from the dead. Everything else could be handled by him. And so even in the midst of something so terrible as persecution, the martyrdom of one of their key leaders, they were scattered, yes, because they were running. At the same time, that running didn't stop them from living on mission. I love hearing some of the stories from some of our cross-cultural workers. We just had a couple in our church for a month and they did a, they, the, the husband preached for us and he also uh, shared uh, in our church family. And as they were removed from their uh, place in Asia, they, they, they moved to a different place. They didn't just wallow in this being kicked out of their country. They went about preaching. They found the new place that God was bringing them to to continue that work and then take them out because God is not taken out and not surprised by this moving of them. They went about preaching as they scattered. I love that little bit of truth that's there in verse 4. We need to remind ourselves because we forget. Opposition never stops God. They killed his son and he used that to redeem the world. What can stop this God? Nothing. God is actually in the business of taking impossible situations and turning it around for his glory. And so this is the question we need to regularly ask ourselves as we find ourselves in various trials, tribulations, and difficulties, and suffering, and even possible persecution we find ourselves in our lives. Maybe the very way that God is carrying out his mission in your life is in and through that very thing. It doesn't diminish the fact that we need care, and we need comfort, and we need support in those difficult seasons, but maybe the very most powerful way that God will show up in your life is actually in that situation. And so as we pray, we don't just pray for God to remove us from those situations, although we can pray for that and we should. We also pray for God to work in that situation, through that situation. So as we were praying, we have a partner uh, in Zambia. Uh, well, we partner in Zambia, but it's all throughout uh, Africa, hands at work. As we were praying for the children in the DRC to be rescued and found as they were scattered out, we were praying for rescue and safety. Yes, and we should pray for that. And we should pray in this terrible situation where there's conflict and, and fear, maybe God could use that situation to build his church in ways that the DRC has never seen before. And we pray for that at the same time. We see this rhythm, right? They're gathering and they're scattering and God continues to work even in the midst of opposition. Obstacles can be redeemed to advance the mission and the church continues to thrive because Jesus is continuing to spread his good news. By the time you get to Acts chapter 11, the gospel's going forth. And at this point in Acts chapter 11, it's mainly gone to Jewish people. Now, Philip goes out to Samaria and he's going to people who are half Jewish. 
but it's mainly primarily by the time you get to Acts 11 to Jewish people. But he's called them, Jesus has called them, to be witness to the end of the earth, to all nations, all peoples. They're scattered and through persecution, which means they're going to various urban centers. And one of the main urban centers they get to is a city called Antioch, which we read about in Acts chapter 11. And here, the gospel uniquely and powerfully after Acts 10 and Peter having that experience with a very strange blanket, the weirdest picnic in the history of the world, right? If you know familiar scriptures, like he's given all these things that he's never eaten in his life. And God says to him, no, you need to eat these things. Strange that you read that chapter. But then that's telling them that the gospel is going beyond their cultural background, going beyond their ethnicity. The gospel is going out. And in Antioch, you see amazing things happen. Non-Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. The church hears about it and they send Barnabas and Paul there and they minister there. This is one of the first multi-ethnic churches, Jew and Gentile. You begin to see this fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, the, the, the nations beginning to come together, united under Jesus. Not bound by anything else other than their family because of the blood of Jesus, who's lived and died for them. This is the place where Christians in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, where Christians are first called Christians. I believe it's Acts eleven twenty six. I can't remember the exact verse. But they're first called Christians in Antioch. Before this, they were just called people of the way. They weren't given a name otherwise. They will only be called Christians because of what happened in the label in Antioch. And so if you're ever on Jeopardy in the future and someone asks, where were Christians first called Christians? You will remember Antioch and you will get that right. Unlike that, did you see that Jeopardy a few weeks ago or a month ago where they were asked the Lord's Prayer? A Father who art in heaven and they said, blank, be your name. And none of the people knew it. It's like, how do people not even know, even if they don't know Jesus, the word that's there, hallowed, right? So now if you get asked, if you're on Jeopardy sometime in the future, you get this one, you can give me credit later. They're first called Christians in Antioch. You got it. They belong to Christ. That's where they're first called Christians because you see this gathering of people from various places, ethnicities called Christ followers. And then they're scattered again. Look at verse uh, 2 to 5 of Acts 13 as Paul and Barnabas minister in Antioch. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. In Antioch, they gathered. They saw a gathering of Jews and Gentiles around Christ, and then they also scatter and multiply. The Holy Spirit moves, and they recognize Paul and Barnabas as much as they benefited from having these two powerhouses of Christian leaders in their place, the Holy Spirit sends them out. And so Jerusalem is one of the first sending bases. And now Antioch becomes one of the main sending bases for the early church. They pray, they recognize that God is calling them. And this is the start of the rest of the book of Acts. As you see Paul go on three different journeys around the world, the known world at the time, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, establishing elders everywhere he goes. And then you see the spread of the gospel and the building of the church that's astonishing, this urban movement moving through cities. And all of this comes from this seemingly to their culture an unknown carpenter from Nazareth who was killed. 
the gathered and they scattered and you see the spreading of the church. The sending also is something we do on a regular basis. I'll talk about this in a moment, but this is what we just did in the sending of David and Lorraine as God has called them and we prayed and walked with them as they were sent out I'm from our family. They're our family. They're our extension of Sunset Church in India. We do this with people who are not traditionally in what we could call vocational ministry positions. We have people who move geographically to different places for their jobs and we pray over them as we send them out. We don't just send people who are doing missions or ministry. We send people as they move because God is taking you and your talents and your gifting and your calling to move to a different place, not just because of your job, not just because of family, but because you are living on mission in a new geographical place for his glory. And so I remember a number of years ago, about a decade ago, we had a, a couple in our church and they were new to our church. They were only here maybe a couple of years and they became members in our church and they were deeply involved relationally in our church, serving in our church. And as they left, we prayed for them as they went back to New York. And I, I'm so glad we, we prayed and, and, and sent them out in that way as that brother eventually became an elder in his local church, caring and loving, because we send them. He, he was moving for family and work, but he was extension of our church as we send them and multiply God's work and kingdom. Let me apply this. So we didn't take four hours, but a quick survey of the book of uh, at least half of Acts. How does that apply to us? Let me spend a little bit of time. And I think this begins to shape very powerfully what we do in our gathering and what we do in our scattering as a church. And we need to do both of these things. These things are held together. And we find there's a rhythm of inhaling, gathering together, and exhaling, sending out. Gathering has to do not just with Sunday, but there is a very unique role in our Sunday gathering. I want to speak to that unique role in our Sunday gathering. We gather on the Lord's Day, getting together in this space, not just in the worship service, but in the spaces we have after service. We gather together as a church on the Lord's Day to be built up, to be encouraged, to pray for one another. There's a unique role. Is this gathering on Sunday was not always the case for God's people. This is a New Testament reality as the Lord was raised on the third day on Sunday. Because prior to this, the Sabbath was in the Old Testament sundown from Friday to sundown on Saturday. That was their Sabbath. And they worked Monday through that time on Friday before sundown or Sunday. They gathered on Sunday, the early church though, because Jesus rose on the Sunday. The resurrected Jesus rose on Sunday. And so the Lord's people gathered on Sunday to center their lives around him. Very important. You see this throughout the scriptures again and again. You see this value in the early church through the early church fathers. You see this again and again, this unique role in gathering on Sunday. And Sunday, you retell the gospel. You recenter on Jesus. And then you're sent out again with the mission of Jesus. You're gathering together so that you would hear the good news because throughout Monday through Saturday, we're regularly hearing conflicting news. Sometimes it's just good advice that isn't good news. Sometimes it's outright conflict, differing ideologies that tempt us to be drawn to lesser things. And we gather to center because we're fighting for the values of what take place first in our hearts. We gather on Sundays because what we do on Sunday shapes us. Part of our worship service, what we do here 
is intentional to giving rhythms and we're actually trying to disciple through the things we do on Sunday morning. Those who come from a more high church background, you maybe called this in your church liturgy. Uh, every church has a liturgy. You just may not use the word liturgy. Uh, low churches, like high churches, you see people wearing robes, collars, things like that. Uh, they're more formal. They, they call it liturgy. We actually have a liturgy. Every church you've ever been a part of, if they have a Sunday gathering, has a kind of liturgy, if you could define it. It has some things that they do on a regular basis. We just call it order of worship, but it's the same thing. And I want to unpack some of that in a general sense to help you understand what we do on Sunday is uniquely important and valuable for us as we gather and honor the Lord in this way. It's important that we do this in person, in shared space, because this is what guides us as his people. The very first thing we do in our worship gathering is a call to worship. We, we come together, and often when we come together, if you're a parent, you know this experience, right? You have barely made it to church. Your kids are screaming, and you're trying to center your heart, and they're throwing Cheerios in the back seat, and you're yelling at them, and you get to church, and you drop them off. Finally, I can get rid of them. And then you get them to sit here, and you're like, oh, we're distracted, right? Or maybe that's not your experience and your heart has wandered. You've, you've wandered and you've given your attention and heart and your eyes to something that is not of the Lord. And you, you, you need to be brought back to focus on God. That's what we do a call. We need to be called to worship because throughout the rest of our week, we're tempted to be called to worship other things. And to be honest, let's just be honest for a second. And this is true of me when I'm not in charge of church too. Most of us never hear a call to worship because we're late. And it's because we don't understand that this is something we need, that we need to be called to worship. This is why it's important as a value as we're trying to get our hearts centered on Christ, that we hear what the church does in calling us together. And this is intentional, that we lift our eyes to the Lord, depend on him, center our hearts on him. And then throughout the, 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 our worship service, we have some of these elements in different ways, through prayer, through song, and we come to them in different ways, sometimes through the word too, but we usually have throughout our worship service adoration, confession, and assurance in different ways. So sometimes they come out in song, sometimes it comes out in the word, sometimes it comes out in prayer, sometimes a worship leader guides us, and sometimes I do. But adoration is giving God the appropriate attention, praise, gratitude, Confession is, if you give God the right attention, if you lift your eyes to him and see him for all who he is, you will immediately come to recognize how far you are from him. Which is why immediately after we give him adoration and praise, we ought to confess our sins because we know how far we are without him. We confess our sins because it's being honest about how far we are. It's not pretending like we're better than we are. It's acknowledging we need him. We don't wallow in it though. There's, because we know as followers of Christ, there's, there's like a conquering of that, but we acknowledge it because it's being honest. We're not pretending to be something we're not. We're not all together. And so as we come to church, we know, even though our temptation in our culture sometimes is to pretend like everything's okay. Sometimes it's because of time. Sometimes we don't know how these muscles develop, but we're not okay when we come to church. We know that. We just pretend like everything's okay, but we confess to the Lord. This, it's not everything's okay. And then you follow that up with assurance because there's good news. It's not like we're just dead in our sins. No, there is an answer. There's a salvation from that rebellion we have in our hearts. And we need to hear that again and again, that we're forgiven, that we're made new, that God delights over you, that he actually dances over you because of Christ. We also then have a time in our worship service 
usually in older churches, they call this the passing of the peace. We don't call it that in our church. We just have a time where we have the church actually say hello to each other and actually greet each other and share announcements. Now, this may seem like just a, a mere practical thing, but this is deeply important in the church because this is the moment of our church worship service that takes us from the vertical attention that we give to the Lord to recognize as we focus on the Lord vertically, it deeply impacts our horizontal relationships. That this is not something just me and the Lord alone. We are doing this in the context of community. We hear what's happening in our church, so but we learn how to pray for the needs of our community. We're not just interested in ourselves, but we are beginning to care and the, for the burdens of other people. And so it's not just hello. It, it's beginning to make connections. So as you begin with hello, you continue that after church and can we meet up and how can I walk with you? And how can I support you? This is what begins the passing of the peace, the, the greeting for one another begins to demonstrate what we need to be doing throughout our lives with one another. We have a chance to reflect on offering in our church of time, resources, a posture that says, God, you, if you are everything and, you, and we are nothing without you and we need each other, we, we, we're offering ourselves to you. We're offering every bit of you because we know you bought us by your ransom. It's a posture of open hands. God, you own every bit of my life. Tell me how I'm to serve you with this because you are Lord and I am not. We go on from that to sermon and we, we center on the word. We center on the word by reading of scripture. We read it out loud and often it will be read by another brother or sister in our church because we're, we're called to hear from God's word. We want to unpack it and so we go through sermons that are not just repetitions of things that are written throughout history, but we look and we look at the word. We, we look at the word primarily going through main books of the Bible because we as a, as a church want to be committed to the whole council of scripture. So if you're new to our church, this may be new to you, but if you've been with us, you see this and you sense this pattern, right? One year we're primarily in a, in a testament. And so this year we're primarily in the New Testament. Our main book is 2 Corinthians and we've gone through different books. But Next year, we'll be back in the Old Testament and we'll primarily be in the Old Testament. And we spatter throughout their different topical series, but we're going to try and go through as much of the Bible as we can because we believe we want to hear from God's word because that's what gives us life and shapes us. We want to respond then. We don't just end with the sermon. We respond in taking of the Lord's Supper once a month. We respond in prayer and confession. We respond in singing. And so as we hear the word, as it calls us to confess and respond, we ought to sing with our hearts out and our arms wide, as wide as you can, given your expressiveness, right? It's because we just heard good news and it calls for us. It demands a response. If you hear the best news ever and you don't respond, maybe you didn't hear the best news ever. That's why we don't end our, our service just with the word. We always respond, sometimes because I preach too long like today, we only maybe we'll have time for one song, oh, two songs, but we always respond because God's word demands, God demands a response from us. And we close with a benediction, a dismissal that's meant to send us out. This is generally what we do in our worship service order our, and rhythms. And this is intentional because it sh gives shape to us. It's important for us to, to learn what it means to be the people of God in these rhythms because this is where we begin to be discipled in the various other places of our life. Think about how most of us learn to pray because we heard someone else pray. 
Think about how we begin to listen and engage in the Word of God. It comes primarily from this space in how the person handles the Word of God. How do we learn how to be in community together? It starts with the place where we get to know people. This is why it's important as a church, if you, especially if you call Sunset Church your home, that we don't just come to church only to connect with people that we're already familiar with. Because we know as God is adding and multiplying in our church that there are other people we need to relationally connect with one another and build each other up. And so the, the application for here, in this gathering part, we see this rhythm is to prioritize the gathering. Not just in this space, in the worship service, as important as that is, but also in life and community as we relate to one another, gathering in homes and various formal, informal spaces of our church. The gathering of the people of God is part of how God begins to expand his kingdom across the world. We see in Hebrews, the author says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. I mean, early in the church already, they had some who were tempted not to meet together. Today, in this day and age, we have all the more reasons, sadly today, and sadly, sometimes we enable them in various means that we do as a church where we don't meet together. We diminish the, the importance of shared space and presence and shared worship and shared hearing of the word. But this is essential to being God's family. And so the call for you isn't just to, to check off a list while I went to church. No, this, this rhythm is how God builds you and how God multiplies in this world. As the world becomes increasingly selfish and self-centered, it's countercultural. In fact, it's very rebellious to gather together for the purposes of centering around Christ. But we don't just do that. We scatter. And I'll need to be quicker here so we can actually respond to the word. But scatter. You know, scatter sounds random uh, in that word in English, but it, it's not purposeless. John chapter 20, verse 21 says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are all sent. And because we are called to God, we are also sent by God with a purpose. This is why in Christ, none of us is lacking meaning, value, worth, and purpose. We all have a new purpose. The purpose isn't just to get a good job, to raise a nice family, and live a nice, comfortable life. No, we have all new purposes in Christ. So if I'm sent with a purpose on Wednesdays, uh, our kids have uh, gymnastics in South City, which became a reason for us to also go to Costco on a regular basis. So if I'm sent by my wife, I'm dropping them off at uh, gymnastics to Costco, maybe we need to get you know meat for a larger gathering or something, or maybe at least to just gas up the car. But I go to Costco and I go there and I'm just stuck in the front of Costco with all those 80-inch TVs that I'm lusting for in the very front. And I never make it to the back to get the chicken or the, the frozen aisle with the meats. If I'm sent there with a purpose and I don't make it, I just, I just come home with a TV instead of meat. I don't think my wife is going to be quite happy with me uh, in that. It's not just random, our, our sending out. It's not just scattered around to do whatever we want. There's a purpose. We are called to shine light where there's hate, to bring peace where there's despair, and ho bring hope where there's none. We're sent by God to share 
the gospel in our words, in our lives, to do justice in a culture of injustice, show God's love through our vocations, to do it in our places of work. I, w- I love what this missionary thinker and writer said, Leslie Newbegin. He said, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Nothing in your life is random, especially in Christ. You are sent. We did not see it this way. You are literally sent to the specific address you live at. You are sent to that apartment. You are sent to those neighbors you have. You are sent to the classmates you have. You are sent to the workplace you have. That's especially true. Think about how this is applicable today. Most people in culture today, think about San Francisco especially, most people in San Francisco have all kinds of ideas about Christians. Most people today in our culture think Christians are narrow-minded, bigoted, outdated, only care about themselves, have their eyes closed out to science, and cut off their brains and live by a fairy tale till long ago. That's how most people think about Christians today. The reason that continues on is because most people who think this way haven't actually met a Christian who's living on mission. Their perception is shaped by some other source. Their experiences, the media, whatever they hear from other people, they just keep spreading it by word of mouth. But you have been sent to befriend the very people that God has placed you in your life, in your address, in your workplace, in your position, in your class to to emulate Christ for them. He has scattered you in those places for that purpose. It's the very least of what it means for us to be scattered in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, for this purpose of God. Nothing that you have in your life, your place, your position, your education, your experiences, both good and bad, is without purpose. God is sending you. He has scattered you in those places. So when we think about Sunset Church, we thought about early on in the series, we talked about the institution of the church as well as the organism of the church. Sunset Church exists here at 42nd and Lawton. Yes, but we exist everywhere in this city and in the larger Bay Area because we are scattered for that mission. Let me end with this key thought because a lot of this has to do with us. And there is a role, there's a responsibility for us. But this is more than just a practical message. If you look throughout the book of Acts, I really want you to see this. Yes, we are called to gather. Yes, we are called to scatter. And so there is a role that we have in that. But ultimately, it's Jesus who's building his church. And so he's the one gathering us. He is the one sending us. And so he draws us in. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. He's also the one who says to us, go. And as he does that, we have this rhythm of gathering and being sent out. He is saying to us, as he said to his disciples there, I will be with you. All power, all authority is given to him. He is building the church and he will be with us. Church, as we've been going throughout this series, we're actually closing this series today. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians uh, next week. I I pray that God has continued to shape us in what it means to be his people, to be his family. And we learn what it means to be his family. 
means what it means to function as his family. Because as we begin to live in this identity we have as saved sinners brought together in the family, given a purpose to live on mission, I pray that God would continue to use us for his glory, that we would be built up, that you would be built up. You would find place of intimacy, caring, rootedness, and you find a renewed or new purpose that Christ has given to you for his glory. Let's pray together. And would you take a moment just to have the Spirit call you to respond before we sing in response? And maybe that is a commitment you need to express or a confession you need to con- con- express or praise. Father, as I reflect on your words through Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I know that to be true. Because this many years, this many generations, this many millennia after those words, the church is still spreading. Because it wasn't us, as broken as we are, as far and rebellious as we are, you are building the church. And so I pray your spirit would not move from us. Because you are building the church, whether we are faithful or not, whether we are obedient or not. I pray that your spirit would not move from us Because often you don't even need to judge us, Lord. You're waiting for us to return, to confess. And so the places for which we are disobedient or lazy or apathetic about gathering or about scattering, Father, draw us to see this good news again anew. Father, build us up. I long, Lord, to myself and for our church to be faithful to the mission you've given to us. And so bring us alive anew in Christ because we see how glorious, how good, how merciful he is in gathering us, ascending us for your name and glory. Amen.